Well, hello everybody and welcome to Pathway. Great to be together. We continue on in our sermon series that we've been in for a few weeks now. We're getting close to wrapping that up, but it's good to welcome you live in the live auditorium and to welcome those of you who are joining us at home and uh, glad that you are tuned in today, whether you're at home or whether you're on the road or traveling or maybe in another country as we know that some of you are and welcome to you. Welcome to those of you in the classic service. Welcome to those of you on the moon campus. So thankful for what is going on there and so appreciative of who you are and all of the ministry that is happening in that location as well. But it is good to be together. And as we get into things today, I just want to ask you this. Do you think you have common sense? I mean, I think that most of you would probably respond to that with some sort of affirmative answer like you do, but I thought we could just put that to the test with the story that I saw in the news recently. It comes from the art world. From the art world. Earlier this year, an Italian man named Salvatore, say that with me, Salvatore, there you go, good Italian name, right? And this guy in Italy, he sold one of his sculptures, he was the artist, for a little over $18,000. And that's pretty good, I mean, to get that sort of money out of your sculpture. And there was something that was sort of special about this particular sculpture that made it very unique. And the thing that was so unique about this sculpture is <laughs> that it was a sculpture of nothing. No, seriously. It was a sculpture that you could not see. It was invisible. It was a sculpture of nothing. Now, now he wasn't making a joke of it. He was very, very serious about this thing that he had, he had created. And I, and I thought I'd bring you a picture and show you, but there's nothing to see. And so I actually went one better than that. I went to Italy this week, and I brought it back with me so you could see it. Here it is. What do you think? Do you like it? Yeah, that, 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 he sold it. $18,000 is what he sold that sculpture for. And I'd love to tell you who bought it, but we don't know because the, the person who bought it insisted on being kept anonymous. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I'd, I'd want that too. Well, for multiple reasons. One, you wouldn't find, want somebody finding out that you're the one who bought it and find out where you live and come over and steal it, right? And of course, the other reason is because you, you wouldn't want anybody to know that it was you. If you spent $18,000 on nothing, even though they gave him a signed certificate of authenticity, that it was what he was being, or what it was what he was buying, It doesn't make any common sense to purchase such a thing, right? Or does it? See, of course, there would be other people who would say differently because his hope was actually to sell that sculpture for somewhere between six and $10,000. But it was being auctioned off, and there was so much interest that a bidding war started. And so that's what got the amount up to over $18,000 to purchase this thing. They obviously saw something in the piece that most of us wouldn't. Like, literally, you know? Absolutely, that's the case. They would say that there was something found in that sculpture that was uncommon, that the majority of people just wouldn't be able to appreciate. And I think they're definitely right about that. But what what they were pointing out is that sometimes what some person sees, it just looks sort of common, someone else looks at, and it doesn't look common at all. It's it's very unique, very 
different. And the same thing happens in the idea that there are some things that just seem to make common sense to some of us, and for others of us, it's like, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's, it's uncommon sense, <coughs> excuse me, if you will. Now, I'm not going to try to argue that point from a sculpture, specifically that sculpture, but the, the truth is there are some other things in life where there is this differentiation that happens between things that would seem to be just common sense to us, and for other people, it wouldn't make common sense at all. And interestingly enough, we actually see some of that in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, which is Ecclesiastes 9. And I would invite you to go ahead and turn there, if you would, to Ecclesiastes (coughs) chapter 9. It's where we've come in our studies through this book. Now, we're getting close to the end of a sermon series that we've been in here in Ecclesiastes, where this guy named Solomon has been searching for the meaning of life. And he's been struggling to find this out. And he searched in any of a number of different locations in areas that you might naturally think that you would look if you were looking for meaning. Things like money and sex and and power. (coughs) Things like work. Things like entertainment. And again and again and again, as he is doing this exploration, he keeps coming up empty. He can't find the thing that he is looking for. And so he keeps coming back to this question, what's the point? What's the point? And it's a question that we've been asking in this sermon series as well. What's the point of this life that we're living on this earth? What's the point that Solomon is trying to give us in what it is that he has written? Now, that exploration takes an interesting twist as we come to this particular chapter because Solomon brings up some issues that maybe we have already drawn some conclusions about. We've already made up our own mind about some of these things, and we might call them the common sense here in this passage. But in each case, he's going to offer us something that is maybe outside of what we would naturally come to conclude something that is going to force us to do a little bit of thinking, a little bit of examination outside of what our first response might be to it. Now, if you're a person who's been in faith for some period of time, these might be things that are going to sound a little bit odd. They might be a little bit outside of what your normal examination or understanding might be. If you're a person who is new to faith or one who is just searching in your faith, these might be things that actually sound more natural or believable or understandable to you, but you're going to be kind of surprised to hear them in this place or in this context. But we're going to take a look at these because there's something very important for us to learn when it comes to that which is common sense versus uncommon sense, if you will. There are a few different realities we're going to consider. So let's just go ahead and dig into this. The first reality we're going to look at today as we consider the difference between what is common and uncommon sense is this, that everyone shares a mutual destiny. Everyone shares a mutual destiny. Now, the study of Ecclesiastes can be difficult for people who have faith in God because it raises questions that sometimes we don't like to think about. And it might bring something up for you, a a question that would be in your mind, but you really don't like to to bring it up because it forces you to sort of examine something that that you're not sure you have an answer to, but so you don't want to bring it up in case you can't really come to something that's satisfactory for you. 
We don't like it, perhaps, because we don't have all the answers. But that's actually what I love about this book. Solomon is doing a legit search. He's saying, this is really where I am. This is really what I'm trying to figure out. This is not one of those things where he's already got the answer in his mind, and he's just trying to sort of back into some proofs about the answer he's already come to a conclusion about. No, this is him just saying, this is really what's on my heart. This is really what's on my mind. This is really what I'm struggling with, and I want to try to find some answers. And I love that approach. We can see it right from the start of this passage. Verse 1 says this. Take a look at it. Chapter 9, verse 1. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. That's a great start. He's declaring the sovereignty of God. He's declaring that God has everything in his hands, but then as he goes on, he sort of drops this bombshell. And we see it as verse 1 continues. It says, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. Really? All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Well, that's cheery. (laughs) This guy would be fun to hang out with at parties, I think. He's saying that all of us are going to die, and that's true regardless of how much exercise you do, regardless of how much kale you eat. We're all going to die. And that's not news to you. You know that we're all going to die, unless you're one of those who believes that Elvis is still alive. The startling part of the verse is that Solomon, or these verses, is that Solomon is struggling to see how it's any different for the person who's good or bad for the person who's clean or unclean, for the person who's righteous or the person who is wicked. He says, I don't see how there's any difference for either of them. So what difference does it make which one you are going forward? That's what he's really asking here. Solomon has this internal sense that there should be a discernible difference between those who are upright and those who are living wicked lives. But that's not what he sees in his observation, just looking around him. He's got this problem going on. And for the last couple of chapters, we've seen him ask the same sort of question and bring up the same idea. We saw it in chapter 7. We saw it in chapter 8. He says, why do the wicked get what the righteous deserve? And why do the righteous get what the wicked deserve? These are questions that he has. These are questions that we have too. Sometimes we might be afraid to voice them or to bring them up or really ask them. But every now and then, we start to really think deeply about life and we can see that there are things in life, it just looks like they pretty much just tick along normally without a lot of divine involvement. You ever think that? You ever sort of see that? Now, it's not that we we don't experience blessings in life. We do. We experience lots of blessings, but, but we come to maybe just sort of ask ourselves, is that God's hand pouring that out, or would I have received that stuff anyway? Or on the flip side, you might know the sinfulness and the selfishness that is present in your life. And you're wondering, why is it that I'm not just always sort of judged or experienced problem because of the, the depth of my sinfulness and my selfishness? Why am I not just always judged? Why is it that my life is actually pretty blessed when I come to think about it? It's like that doesn't compute really either. When that happens, it can cause a little seed of doubt to start to form in your mind. Or maybe for you, it's a whole meal of doubt. 
that you're asking, trying to figure out what's going on with this, and you can't really sort it out, and it sort of keeps you from having this deep and abiding confidence in faith. And it keeps you from having uh, a willingness or desire to go and (coughs) speak to others about your faith because you're not really sure how deep it even goes for you. Now, thankfully, Solomon is willing to just tell it like it is, and this gives us an opportunity today to let our own similar thoughts and questions go ahead and bubble up to the surface and to consider them for a while. (coughs) The rationale behind these sorts of doubts is that there should be more of a cause and effect relationship between the things that we do and the things that we experience. When we do good, that things should be good, and when we do bad, that things should result in bad and difficult things and problems. I'd call it merit outcomes. We get what we earn. We might also call it absolute justice. It's like that's what would make sense to us. But is that really what we want? Do we really want to experience that? If you're going to argue for merit outcome as a worldview, you have to believe that you have your heart and your mind in really good places and that you're pretty much making the right choice most all all of the time. And perhaps against the standard that you see around you, it does look like you're doing really well, but merit outcomes aren't measured against the people who are around you. Absolute justice isn't measured against people who are around you. It's not based on relative standards. It's based on absolute standards. So you're not measured against your neighbor's holiness, You're measured against God's holiness, and God's pure. God is sinless. God is perfect, but we're not. And Paul says we're sinful. We've fallen short of God's glory. We've missed that mark. What we want, what we need isn't a merit outcome world. We need a grace outcome world where despite what we actually do, how we actually live, that we experience something that is toward our benefit. And thankfully, God desired for that, uh, that for us too. And so that's why He came into the world in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that that stain of sin that is on us, that marks us, might be taken out of the way. That's what He did for us. And that grace He has provided is like a rain that sort of falls on the whole world and it touches everything that it falls on. And so it falls on those who are seeking to follow after Christ in the ways of Jesus. And it also falls, as it falls onto our world, on those who are not or are not yet following after the ways of Jesus Christ. Christ, but should we think less of God because He's been so generous with His grace that everybody gets to experience it? Well, no, of course not. And if we are coming at it from a standpoint or have a mindset that God should be more gracious to me than He should be to my neighbor because of something that I've done, then we're misunderstanding the heart of God. We're misunderstanding the blessing. We might be actually revealing more of what's going on in our own hearts. It might be more the height of selfishness. Now, it's not that God is ignoring those who've given their heart over to Jesus or have committed themselves to Him. Not at all. God has made tremendous promises to those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ that He is already bringing blessing on our lives in this world and that He has an eternal blessing in store for all who know Him 
as Lord and Savior. That is something that is a tremendous blessing that not everybody is going to experience. That's why He came into our world. (coughs) And if that act of mercy only leads us to cry foul because those who haven't received that new life experience some blessing now and then, again, it's a reason for us to be examining our own hearts. (coughs) So, as for Solomon's question about the wicked getting what the righteous deserve and the righteous getting what the wicked deserve, it's really just the wrong question. Because what both deserve is judgment from God, is judgment for their sin. That's what is deserved. It's only because of the response to the grace of God that there's going to be a separation of, that, of the two. And why that is God's design and how He decides what different ones or the way that He's going to pour out a grace or the way that He is going to withhold something in a moment. The fact that we don't understand that is not something for us to cry foul toward God on. It's something to simply acknowledge that God has a grace that we don't understand and leave it sort of in that category. But it is what it is in that sense. Sure, I'd love to understand how it all fits in with our own human reasoning skills, and I can't do that, but there are some mysteries of God that we just can't understand. And the Apostle Paul came to that same sort of conclusion, and he tried to figure it out, and he couldn't sort it all out for himself either. And so he wrote in that regard these words, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That's what he says. Instead of getting frustrated at what we don't or can't comprehend just yet, let's accept the fact that God is just beyond our own understanding. And that's not a bad thing, not at all. I want a God who is beyond my limited knowledge and wisdom. That's the very thing that gives me hope and confidence that God is accomplishing something that transcends my human understanding that goes beyond this world that we live in with all of its limits. But in the meantime, like Solomon, we're left with some things that we're not going to be able to fully explain. Everyone is going to die, but we should seize the moment while we can to live in the fullness of what he offers. That's essentially what he's saying as he goes on. Verse 4, anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. And what's a lion? It's a cat. So what this verse is saying is that a dog is better than a cat. At least that's what I get out of it. All right, so maybe there's a little something more here. See, dogs in those days were not adorable pets that you name Corky and Cooper. That's not what they were. They were, they were undesirable things. They were scavengers. Think more hyena and less... Parker, all right? That's, dogs were not desirable at all in those days. Lions, on the other hand, were respected. They were feared. So what he is saying here is that it's better to be alive without status than it is, thank you, than it is to be dead with it. It's better to be alive without status than it is to be dead with it. 
is what he's pointing out. His point is that while you're alive, you have hope. You have opportunity, unlike those who are dead, who have nothing. They have no hope. They have no opportunity for anything. Verse 5 says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. So common sense tells us that there are issues that look like inequities on the surface, but uncommon sense says to us that we can see that it might appear unfair. It's actually evidence of God's grace for the follower of Christ who's going to experience His blessing in unfathomable ways in time. Solomon then goes on. That's the first thing, to highlight something else that makes uncommon sense, and that's that everyone can live a joyful life. Everyone can live a joyful life. If you've been with us through this series, or maybe you have uh, just been here for the first portion of this message, you might come to the conclusion that Solomon is kind of a negative sort of guy, right? He's got kind of a pessimistic point of view. But there are some things here that brought him satisfaction and joy. We can see some of them as he goes on here. Verse 7 says, he says, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Eating and drinking with family and friends that he talks about here were times of enjoyment and happiness and fulfillment in the ancient world. And of course, they still are. And many of you are going to be participating in that very sort of thing in a few weeks as you gather together with family and friends for Thanksgiving. And you sit around the table and you just enjoy one another's company. That's awesome. And you should definitely do, you should do that. Now, in Ecclesiastes, there are only a few times that Solomon gets to the place where he says, I want you to go live and enjoy this. I want you to go out and find satisfaction in doing this. Most of it is about what he can't find or where he can't find it. And now here all of a sudden, he comes back to this idea. It only happens a few times. And every time it happens, it's fascinating. Every time it happens in Ecclesiastes, the common denominator there that is going on is that it is something connected to God, which is where he tells people to go and find that sort of enjoyment. There's always a connection to God. And so here in chapter 9 and verse 7, he writes that God has sanctioned that sort of celebration. But that's not all that he says. If you go back to chapter 5 where he says it, he says this, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Here's that connection. You read the rest of that chapter and other chapters, you don't find it. Back to chapter 3, it says, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Enjoyment, yes, connected to God. Back in chapter 2, it says that this way, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I say, saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Again and again and again, he comes back to this. He's dropping in these gems all the way along to make sure that we understand that the 
the ultimate joy, the ultimate satisfaction is only going to be found when you find it in connection with God. You can search and search and search as he does and finds nothing, finds no meaning, no satisfaction, but every time he keeps coming back to find this, enjoy this, celebrate this, there's always this connection to God. That should tell us something very dramatic from this. Now, he continues on. The path of this joyful life theme in verse 8 says, always be clothed in white, even after Labor Day. Well, it doesn't say that, but I'm sure that he means that. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. White garments in those days were kind of like dress-up clothes, things you'd wear for celebrations and, and for joyful occasions. And he's saying, live your life like that. Celebrate it. Make the most of what you have in opportunity, in connection with God, of course. He says, and anoint your head with oil. Oil was sort of like a perfume in the day. So you'd smell your best. That's good, good advice. Verse 9, enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. There's good stuff there. But Solomon has kind of a, a unique way to say it. Don't you think when, when he says it this way about enjoying your wife? I mean, imagine as, as a wife getting this anniversary card with, the, with, this, uh, with this verse. It'd be like on the cover, it, uh, it would say, enjoy life with your wife whom you love. That's beautiful. Then you open it up and inside it goes on. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. It's, it's like, you're going to give that to your wife? No, you're not. It's like, what, what in the world is up with that? That's not very romantic. But you know what? It's actually kind of sweet if you really understand what he's saying here. You see, what he's saying is that even though so much of life can be taxing and laborious, you can offset all of that by finding joy with your wife. That just the, the life that you're able to enjoy there is so positive, so strong, that can offset all of that other junk that you hate about existence on this planet. Because that's how powerful it is. Now, I realize that this is a pretty specific application uh, because it's talking about those who are married, and, and I know that not all of you are married. But for those who are, he's saying, enjoy your wife. Do that. Set aside time to build that relationship. Keep dating one another. Keep pursuing intimacy with one another. Get away on your own so that you can foster times with one another so you can grow in your relationship. Celebrate the relationship that you have. Love one another. Listen to one another. Respect one another. Value one another. Solomon says that, that when there are times, so many times, that so many things that can leave you empty, that this is something that can and will fill you up. He says, go for it which is awesome advice. Now, I know that some of you have gone down a road where there's really not much enjoyment or intimacy, a relationship that's really left there. I know that that happens. I've talked to too many couples to think differently. And you might be one of them that is in that situation but stop living in a rut. You need to do whatever is necessary to break out of it. And I don't want to oversimplify because I know that marital problems are tremendously complicated things. But don't give up. Go after it. Make it what it can be. Do whatever is necessary to move yourself back toward the direction of where it was that you got started. 
celebrating, enjoying, loving. Others of you are not at the place where you'd say, well, I, I, or you would be at the place where you'd say, well, I'm, I'm still enjoying her a little bit, <laughs> or him a little bit, or maybe somewhere along the whole spectrum. Wherever you are, fostering the development of the relationship from wherever it is forward and not allowing there to be sort of the stagnation or just sort of just sort of saying well a lot of it's good and some of it's bad and so hopefully it'll just get a little no be aggressive in moving your way forward so that you might always be able to enjoy the relationship that you have with one another solomon says this is one of the great refuges that we have in the midst of a world that is so much beating against us and so go after it. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. There's value in work, he's saying, and being able to work, and there should be joy that would come along with that. You can lean into that and enjoy what it is that you do, and if you don't, maybe you need to find somewhere where you can. Common sense approach to life is is to live in the problems and complain about the whole thing while it just sort of slips by and it's drudgery and you hate it and day after day after day it's the same thing. And Solomon said he went after work and he found that that doesn't supply. And that's where a lot of people are just sort of stuck. An uncommon approach is to find the joy in all that surrounds you. Engage with others. Celebrate what you have. Celebrate who you have and experience the fullness of what is available for us. Make the most of the life you have under the sun. Then one last thing Solomon highlights that makes uncommon sense is that everyone faces an uncertain future. Solomon makes this point right away as the passage continues in verse 11. It says, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows what their hour, when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Common sense would say that you would and could predict outcomes. The race would go to the swift. The battle would go to the strong. Uncommon sense says that not everything works out the way that you might expect. The New York Yankees had been in nine of the previous 11 World Series. They'd won seven of them. And now they were on their way to another one. And they were the heavy favorites in this one also. They went to the World Series with players like Whitey Ford and Roger Maris and Yogi Berra and Mickey Mantle and others all on their team. Oh yeah, they were very heavy favorites, to be sure. The year was 1960. Their opponents in the World Series were the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, everybody was a bit surprised that the series actually went seven games, but it did. And in that seventh game, it came down to the ninth inning of that seventh game. And the Pirates were ahead, nine to seven. Just three outs, and they would be World Series champions. 
That's not the way that it went down. The Yankees, with all the strength of their team, made a comeback, and they scored two runs in the top of the ninth to tie it up nine to nine. Everybody thought, well, in time, because of their dom dominant lineup, they're just going to go ahead and win this game. And that's what people were thinking, especially because in the bottom half of the ninth inning, the Pirates' eighth and ninth hitters, ninth place hitters in the lineup were going to be coming up, which is not exactly the power part of the lineup. And that eighth place hitter, number eight hitter, came up to the plate. His name was Bill. Maybe you've heard of him. Bill Mazeroski. And here's what happened next. Take a look. Ditbar throws. Here's a swing and a high fly ball going deep left. This may do it. Back to the wall goes Pat. It is home run. Home run. The Pirates win. Don't you love that? They came back. They won 10 to 9. They won the World Series over the dominant Yankees. It was called one of the most incredible underdog stories ever. Still is considered that today. See, not everything turns out the way that you would expect. There are often things that we presume are going to happen one way or another just because that's the way they usually go. Or perhaps because that's the way in our own mind that it's probably just going to happen that way, maybe because we're pessimistic, maybe because we just believe things always go against me, but that we don't always know. And instead of that leading us to arrogance on the one side or despair on the other, there's a better approach. James actually helps us to understand it in his letter. He writes this. Let me show it to you. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James says that we should live by God-centered wisdom, not just by man-centered understanding. And when we get to that place, we get to the spot where we come to understand that all things are possible with God. When something looks like, well, that's going to be inevitable, or when we get discouraged about the circumstance that we find happening in our life or in our world, that we don't just give it up. Solomon agrees with the whole thing. He writes this in verse 13 going on. He says, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered the poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fool's. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Solomon's point is clearly about the power of wisdom, but how often it's ignored. In fact, he says it's not just ignored, but that people shout it down and they demand foolishness in its place. And that might sound like the world to you today, that there are a lot of people who are shouting down biblical wisdom and desiring worldly foolishness 
in its place. It happens all around us all the time, and where we see that, it can be very discouraging. But Solomon is acknowledging that, but encouraging us to stick with wisdom and not to just get caught up in that common sense of mankind, not just to come to a conclusion that, well, that's just the way it appears it's going to be going, and so that's just what the outcome is going to be. Or it seems like there's such a slippery slope, and, and our culture is just moving so much in this direction, and it's going so fast that it's just inevitably going to go that way, so we may as well just throw up our hands and give up. Common sense would perhaps suggest to us that that is what's going to happen. Uncommon sense says that God is in control and that God is working all things toward His good, toward His end. And that's something that we can hold on to. Friends, what is common is thinking that the way things appear are the way things are going to end, that the race is to the swift, that the power is to the strong, that the victory is to the majority. But what uncommon, what is uncommon tells us, no, that God has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says. What is common is thinking that we're locked into the rat race of life and we're just going to have to try to trudge through it and survive as best we can. What is uncommon is the understanding that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. What is common is that we all have a mutual destiny and there's no difference whether you're living for Christ or against Christ. What is uncommon is the promise that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, in all of that, what is the uncommon denominator? It's Jesus. It's Jesus and His provision. And we can live in that uncommon wisdom of God by putting our faith in Christ. And you might be here as one who's wrestled your way through some of these circumstances that have come up. You, you do get discouraged by the situations you see around you in, in the world, and it just likes, it looks like, well, common sense says that it's, it's, it's on that road. It's just going to keep going down that road. Or you might be in that situation where you, you look at things that are going on even in your own life, and you're asking yourself, is this God, or is this just the way that it is? Is God present? Is God's involvement active in my life? Or is this just the way that it is? And whether I, I'm in Christ or apart from Christ, that everything's the same. So is there really faith or really something to be understood in who God is and that God is even there? We might have come at this from any of a number of angles, but what Solomon is saying to us is that even though there might be just a natural progression that your mind would go through and say, this is the way that it is, God interrupted that which was happening with his son Jesus and took him to the cross, which is something that is very uncommon, something very unexpected, and did what was against the course, the direction where the world was headed at that time, which was into sin and just living it more and more, and instead arrested that and moved it toward the ability to find righteousness through the son, Jesus Christ. And we can rest in that. We can celebrate that. We can find hope in that. And that's what Solomon is telling us. The one who's looked every, everywhere for meaning and is finding nothing brings us back once again to God. To the hope that is found in Jesus. <clears throat> and that's a hope that is available for all of us and that we'd be remiss to not take the moment to lean into as Solomon has brought us right there to this doorstep. So would you bow your heads with me? <coughs> if you are here today and you're 
You're wondering, where am I? You've had these questions. You've wondered, is, is God really real? You look at your life. You look at the way things are happening, and you've got these questions of, is that God or is that just, just, just the normal course of life for everybody? Solomon asked that question. Are we going to end up in God's favor or not in God's favor? Or it's, it's the same. It looks the same for everybody. He was asking, and you might be there too. Well, we can lean into what Solomon brings us as truth today, that in God is found the hope that otherwise we might be so discouraged that we miss. And so today, if you'd like to find that hope, if you'd like to live that hope, you can do so by putting faith and trust in Jesus, by talking to Him, by asking Him to come and give you that hope and that peace and that salvation. You can do it by praying a prayer, something like this. You can pray just silently where you're sitting. Dear God, I acknowledge that I am one of those sinners. I acknowledge that that sin is something that separates me from you because you're pure and you're holy and you're sinless and I am sinful. And today I want to receive the gift of of hope and new life that is offered through Jesus. So I confess that sin. I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to come and be my Lord and my Savior and to lead me in the ways of righteousness. And that's all that's required of us, the Scriptures say, that God responds to that prayer of faith that you have just prayed now. And we'd love to know about it. So on that connect card before you turn it in, right in there, I trusted Jesus. And we'll know. And we can pray for you or tell me after the service. Or, or maybe you didn't pray, but you're thinking, maybe I want to. I, I'd love to pray with you before you go today. You might be here as one who's just sort of wrestling in, in faith. You've been sort of slow to make the acknowledgement, slow to find a confidence in the faith that, that is there, but it's, it's just in an embryonic form because you've never been willing to, to raise the questions that Solomon raises, even though they're in your spirit and in your heart. And for you today, I pray that you would find the confidence that comes in recognizing that God has come into our world to do an uncommon work to provide an uncommon victory over sin. And I pray for you today. Lord, we thank you for Solomon's exploration and that it, that it can keep us from having to go to all of those same lengths. We thank you for what he just so honestly and transparently brings to us in this chapter, which sounds so much like our own experience and our own exploration. So Lord, today, we do ask that you would give us that confidence through the hope that we have that comes only through Jesus. And we lean into it now in the name of Jesus who died to provide it. Amen.